Hello everybody, and welcome once again to Detect and Protect, the Australian Biosecurity Podcast. I'm your guest host today, Casey Baines, and I'll be taking you through a very special series to celebrate last year's 30th anniversary of the Biosecurity Detector Dog Program. The program plays a vital role in the interception of biosecurity risks in the airport, mail and cargo environments. The Detector Dog's excellent agility and super noses makes them one of our most effective and lovable detection methods. To conclude our celebrations for last year's milestone, we reached out to some of the department's very first biosecurity Detector Dog handlers to hear some stories during their time in the program. And what better way to get our podcast series started than with an interview with the Detector Dog program's first manager, Bob Sterling. Bob talks us through his journey with the Detector Dog program from its humble beginnings involving sourcing handlers, trainers, and the iconic Beagle through to his role in building the profile of the program with various promotions and media, including newspaper articles and television appearances. Bob didn't just manage the program, but he was also on the ground handling dogs, working during the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Okay, enough from me, let's jump into the interview. Thank you again for joining us and being part of our celebration for the 30th year um, of the Biosecurity Detector Program. Um, to start us off, could you just give us a bit of an overview of your role in the program and when you started and how you got into it? Okay, well, all right, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, one of, it, it happened back in 1991. One of our senior, senior managers, um, Dennis Patterson, had been to America, seen the Americans using the Beagles, and uh, came back and said, right, we're going to set that up and do it. Um, and I knew it was being set up, and it just happened that in around July, they just approached me and asked me if I'd be prepared to run it. Uh, and I, of course, went, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, so what happened was they had contracted one of the main trainers from America yeah. to come over and join us, Cal Branica, and... Uh, he arrived in September. We'd set up kennels and everything else in uh, Brisbane. Yeah. The quarantine facilities there. We'd um, and we used one of their big sheds that weren't being used at the time to do the training in. Right. And then Cal Brannick and I started scouring the country looking for beagles. We we had beagles specifically because in America they'd found that everybody liked them and working in amongst the general public, people were really comfortable with having the beagles around. Um, the beagles actually rate on a survey that I saw and, step, and um, studies they'd done that they rated as the most, most, sorry, the least aggressive of all the canines towards people. Right, okay. And, so um, and everybody knows them because of Peanuts and Snoopy. Mm -hmm. So everybody yeah. knows the beagle. And, uh, <laughs> and they're just food mad and will do anything for a bit of food. So to yeah. do a passive reward with them, they just sit. If you're right, you get a bit of food. These, yeah. They'll swim backwards up Niagara Falls for a bit of food. Beagles <laughs> work on their stomach. Yeah. Uh, and that's – and I mean, a lot of other, you know, dogs need different reward systems and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we ended up doing that eventually. but. So we, we got the right number of beagles. We worked closely with beagle clubs. Uh, and I think most of the animal shelters, be the RSPCA or local councils yep, around yep. the country, got to know us. 
because we were forever searching for dogs there. And then we went looking for handlers, obviously, because it was a pilot program, we went within the service and we were fortunate to find uh, Rachel Holdforth in Sydney and Harold Smithart in Brisbane. And we thought, right, these two, they're experienced quarantine officers. Um, We think they're going to be good with the dogs. So we started training them and it turned out we were right. Um, (laughs) And they were very good. And uh, so Rachel with Melody kicked off in Sydney and uh, Harold and Winston were in Brisbane. We started the program, actually officially launched it in March of uh, 1992. Um, The minister then, Alan Griffiths, came up to Brisbane. We did it at the terminal and we had a good turnout. Um, I must say, though, that I did something a little bit wrong in that um, I had written the speech for Alan Griffiths and I had the two dog teams behind a partition and I knew at the appropriate moment in Alan Griffiths' speech that that's when the dog should come out and it was all choreographed nicely. What I didn't realise, though, is that Minister Griffith had decided that he would change the order a little bit of the... Oh. speech. So at the moment that I thought was appropriate, I gave the signal and the dogs came out. So all the cameras just swung straight round onto and the away from him. <laughs> and I've got to give Alan Griffiths his credit. He just stood there and he went, hmm, appears I've been upstaged by the dogs. And that's exactly as it should be. <laughs> he was Very quite happy with it. So that was, yeah. that was good. Um, I Yeah, I thought he did a good job. And Very from, good, yeah. From the pilot program, we kicked off and everybody thought, no, it's a resounding success. And they said, let's just keep expanding it. So we did. Um, and just developed from that. And then eventually we decided that um, because it became a permanent program yeah. into the airports and we were just expanding it to go all around the country, that we should go out to tender for the trainer. Right. Yeah. And we did that. Uh, and we ended up getting a guy called Steve Austin based in Sydney. So all our training then happened in Sydney. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it worked out beautifully and they did an you know, eight-week training course. Um, I was very lucky in that I managed to be at the beginning of every training course, halfway through when we did the validation testing and then again at the end. And uh, so we made up some pretty heavy rules about it. And yeah, all yeah. The, dog, the dogs had to be a minimum of 80% proficient. Mm-hmm. So they had to ignore nonsense, yep, right? Yep. Not nonsense, but nonsense. Yep, nonsense. Um, yep. And they had to get every cent that they'd been trained to do. Uh, and all of our dogs were over 90% wow. uh, uh, accuracy, but it was absolutely a minimum of 80%. Uh, yeah. If they fail that one, they'd have to go back to training or be retired, whatever. Yeah. Um, and the handlers, we, we ended up then going outside because we couldn't find, you know, the appropriate number of handlers from within the quarantine service. So we started yeah. advertising yeah. and it became an exceptionally popular program. How, I'll give how you many an applications idea. did you get? Yeah. Um, at one stage, I advertised for a position each in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. 
I got 858 applications. Oh, boy. And at that stage, <laughs> I was going through them all myself. So this was nights. I spent nights and weekends because I still had my job to do. Yeah. So I spent yeah. nights and weekends going through all these applications. After that, I decided that I would get a company to do it for me under my yeah. criteria, which I did, and that made things a lot. They would whittle it down to a manageable number. But yeah. 858, I thought, for three positions was a little bit wow. over the top. Yeah. It just showed how, um, how popular the program was, and I think that's, to be honest, Casey, I think that is the reason why it became so uh such a good program is because yeah. people in it loved it. Yeah. They enjoyed doing it. They enjoyed going to work. Um, and I think that's what really made it because without the caliber of the staff that I had, mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. It's, yeah, it's that yeah. Simple, yeah. That's always the story. If you find the right people, build the right culture, then everything just comes automatically, basically. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And then so after the first group, which, as I said, was the two, which was Harold and Rachel. And then the next group came on, and that's Dee Apps joined us in Sydney, yeah. and she eventually took over. Rachel became our first senior dog handler in Sydney, and Harold took that role in Brisbane. Yeah. But then Rachel left us, and Dee took over as the senior handler. But during that time also, we then decided we would develop further and go outside of the airports. Yeah, yeah. And then we moved into the active response program, which was dogs doing air couriers and international mail. Mm-hmm. And there we didn't need to worry about what people thought uh, of the dogs. And, you know, so basically we got a different breed of dogs and it was anything we could get our hands on. So yeah. one of the nicest things, and we trained up a lot of our handlers to go out and road test the dogs for us. Yep. Yeah. One of the nicest things was to get dogs out of the shelters. Uh, Some yeah, of them had been like they were on death row because nobody can handle them. They were just so full of it. Um, beagles in particular were escape artists, um, <laughs> which is quite renowned. Yep, but a lot yep. of the other dogs were just so full on that, you know, they, um, yeah, it was very hard to find them a home. And it was so nice to be able to take a dog from there and give them a new lease of life and they'd enjoy themselves. So we had all sorts of animals. And, um, but to do that as a pilot also, I had to take on, you know, just to get it started, a guy called Simon Mills was set up with a dog called Rowdy, which was basically a cattle dog. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was good fun. Simon was a, you know, a renowned dog handler in his own right. Yep. He'd been in dog shows and everything else, dog breeder, right. bit of the same background as I had. And, um, yeah, he made it work, and then it just went from there. So I'll stop rabbiting now. No, that's okay. No. So um, <laughs> to, to sit on that, was the move across to Active Dogs um, either because you couldn't get enough beagles or because you thought you it would be a better way to expand the fleet? And then to follow up and on from that, if they were rescue dogs, did they respond better to an active response? And could you explain what an active response was? Then, okay. All right. So with the beagles in the airport, um, mm-hmm. it was a passive response, which simply meant they sat next yeah. to the item that they were after and they got a passive reward, which was food. So 
that was really fine around the passengers. When you get into areas like International Mail or the air couriers, yeah. um, as I said, we don't need to worry about what people think of them. And so, therefore, we could get whatever breed we felt like. And it wasn't because yeah. the Beagles wouldn't do it. They certainly would. But, you know, if you stick to one breed, it gets hard to fool to fill all the positions that you want yeah. with just one breed. And also, I happen to be a terrier man from way right. back. Um, and there were so many other dogs that could fit the bill. You could train almost any dog to do scent detection work, but some are obviously better than others. Yeah. But if you found a dog, uh, and also an active reward is, is very simple as well. It just simply means that if the dog finds what they're after, the active response is that they'll scratch or nuzzle the item. Now, you don't want that in the airport because you don't want them scratching people's luggage or, or worse, their pockets. Yep. <laughs> in the, in the um, courier and airmail, air not a problem. Um, so they'd scratch that and quite often also they're working on a conveyor belt. So therefore it's on the move as well. So they'd scratch at that and then if they're right, they get a game, either a game of tug of war or a game of fetch and yeah, you can yeah. just play and go stupid with them and the dogs mm -hmm. loved it. So we had dogs ranging from because I, I, I went out and road tested dogs too. I, I loved yep. doing that. That was a great part of my job. Um, I ended up with dogs ranging in size from um, large things close to um, Rottweiler size yep. down to uh, one dog that I got that went to Perth was um, smaller than a Jack Russell Terrier. Right. She was very small, and I got her from the RSPCA here in Canberra, and she was more mad. Just would do anything for a game of game of playing ball, yeah. and uh, she ended up over there. And she was so good because you could put her on the shelves in the air couriers, and yeah. she'd work her way through all the packages. Oh, up and through, yeah. Over the top, some of the yeah. bigger dogs couldn't do. Um, so you know, it's just it's horses for courses. Um, yeah, you know, different dogs for different areas, and but any dog that we took on that didn't work out. We would guarantee to find them good home. Right, of course. So that, yeah. To us, was that was a promise that we gave people if they donated dogs, particularly early stages with the Beagles. Yeah. And they knew that, um, and there are still quite a few dogs out there. Well, sorry, it's getting on now. So from yeah. my time, no, none of them would still be around. <laughs> but we did have a lot of dogs um, you know, that didn't quite make the grade and we would yeah. guarantee to find them good home. Some of them went to the handlers themselves if the dogs retired depending on the dog because if they stayed in kennels like we all had our yeah. own kennels everywhere and quite often that was where they felt comfortable that's where they wanted to stay which was appropriate but sometimes they could they could make the transition and then become a house dog yeah so but either way um yeah once they'd served their useful life with us they went to a good retirement yeah, and that's something that's maintained through the full 30 years. Even today, when a dog retires, they find the, the best home we can for them, whether that's the handler or uh, the list of the best home we can get them. Um, as you, as you, I presume your list is as big as what it was, but I, yeah, your list of yes. people. Yes, <laughs> quite a long list of people that want to rehome detective dogs, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
You were talking about the recruitment process, um, and obviously you had to sift through 800 plus um, applications. Yeah, what, only once did I have to. Do yes. <laughs> what What did you find were the best attributes in detected volcanoes, and who were you looking for when you were recruiting? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, again, initially, we wanted people from within the quarantine service, so we didn't have to teach them. And also, we didn't have the position set up because it was a pilot program. Yep. Um, but you needed people who um, had a natural affinity with dogs that dogs actually naturally responded to. They didn't have to have a big background in handling dogs. If they did uh, and they were good at it, that was a bonus. But sometimes you found that there were some people who had been dog handlers for a long time and we couldn't teach them anything new. Right. So we, we, we couldn't have that. We needed people who were open enough to be taught new methods uh, and to accept what we wanted. There were, funnily enough, there were a lot of people who thought um, a, a food reward and a passive response was a silly way to do things. Right. So obviously they didn't work in the airport. Mm -hmm. um, in the other areas, yes, with the active response, that's fine. But we also, we needed people who had motivation, we needed yep. people who we knew were going to stay with us, but also we needed people who, in the airports, could get on with passengers. Yes, for sure. Who could maintain a, a rapport, but the level of um, being a law enforcement officer, if you like. Yeah, it had to be pleasant um, and also <laughs> to maintain calm because one of the things with dog handling is that whatever emotional state you're in, it runs straight down the lead. Right, so yeah, dog reflects. If, yeah, if you're feeling really, if you've had a fight with your partner before you come in that day, you have to be able to stand at the door and just dump it and then walk in and it's a new day and your dog knows nothing about your background. It just goes, oh, the boss is here, I'm working, and everything's good. If you come in and you're feeling miserable, down, or you're angry, your dog's going to pick up on it and not work properly. So, yeah. yeah. Sure. So it's um, – but we had a great variety of people, different characters, uh, really good staff. I was so pleased with the calibre of the staff that we had from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, yeah. Yes, we did have some who were you know, uh, straight handlers from other areas, from other regions, but there were some who never handled a dog yeah. in this sort of manner in their life, but they fitted the bill. And um, you could t the dogs would tell us because in the interview, not only did they yeah. do a normal interview, every time oh, they got, you got to, to meet a dog, right. Yeah. And it was whatever we felt like using. The time now, if it was at the training center, then yeah, you know, we'd pull out one of the dogs that was there. But if I was interviewing somebody in, say, Adelaide, I would get dogs from the um, from the local pound. Yeah, right. I mean, I'd obviously go and look at them first to make sure they yeah, were yeah. capable of, you know, not getting aggressive or anything else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> put the handlers through the paces with the dog that they've not met. Yep. See if they can follow instructions uh, and see how the dog reacts because the dogs will tell us whether these people are worth having or not. Yeah. Uh, 
that's really that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, the dogs will let you know. Um, and I know you did mention um, that you did get to handle a dog for a little bit yourself. Do you have uh, one story that you draw back on, or one interesting find? Um, and maybe, maybe you could tell us a bit more about why you moved from your role to handle a dog for a short period. Well, as I said, I, I did so much of the dog recruitment as well as the people yeah. recruitment, and that was a part of the operation that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I also got to handle a dog occasionally to do demonstrations. We did the science show in Canberra and I borrowed a, a beagle and we did the right, science yeah. show with kids that were there and whatever and, and that was good. But come the Olympics, leading up to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, we needed all dogs on hand um, in Sydney in particular but also Brisbane and Melbourne. But in Sydney in particular, big influx of people. We needed start, uh, more dogs, and I brought a couple in from interstate. But also, I went, well, I may as well get teed up with a dog. So I did. I, um, Steve Austin, the trainer, um, we had a dog that was had been trained and was used as a spare because occasionally a dog will be off sick or whatever. Of course. So we had spares. So I got teamed up with a little beagle called Cindy, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked the baggage hall and uh, I just became a dog handler for that time which meant I was at the kennels at five in the morning picking the dog up and into the airport and I I stopped being the manager while ever I had the dog on the lead so I just said to everybody I am now a dog handler you treat me as such and definitely the interesting thing was that um, we had media from all over the world obviously the interesting one was a Korean South Korea and the media there wanted to film a dog handler working. Uh, and they also wanted to talk to the manager. And they realised that I was doing both. Yeah, right. I did say to them they might want to get a better dog handler to film actually working. <laughs> um, but no, no, they picked on me. And uh, and we did the interview with the interviewer talking in Korean at me. Then somebody would translate and then I would answer right. in English. But apparently it went okay on national television in Korea. <laughs> which was nice. Yeah. Um, but from my point of view, um, one of the things that surprised and I don't know whether it was deliberately done or not during the Olympics, mm-hmm. but I seem to end up with getting more of the um, wrestlers, weightlifters, boxers right. to cover <laughs> rather than, you know, the uh, gymnasts or, yeah, you know, so yeah. <laughs> I, I got, I don't know why I ended up doing this, but anyway, it was. But no, we all had we had a good time. I thoroughly enjoyed the work, but it was flat out. It was solid, um, and yes, there were a lot of interesting finds. But the more interesting ones, I didn't get. And I tell you about one in particular that happened, and it was Harold Smithart, I think, with his dog Winston, and the dog is trained to sit next to the item, and you get to the stage where you can say to the dog, show me, and they'll pinpoint. So yeah. if you have a big bag and there's, say, an apple right down in the bottom of, of a big pack, um, they will point down here. It's, it's, it's here, okay? Uh-huh. Put, yeah. nose, put it there. Dog sat next to a gentleman and just looked at him, and Harold said, show me, and he just stared up at the guy's top pocket of his jacket. 
Panel checked it out. They put him in for a check. He had queen bees in five fountain pens in his top pocket. Oh, wow. And the dog had scented those. And that was, to me, one of the best finds. Definitely. Could get. And it, it elevated our status in the apiarist industry, like yeah, sky high. Um, yes. So a lot of really interesting finds. And, and another yeah. strange one that happened was um, Ronnie Ivel in Melbourne was working her beagle. And somebody had brought in on their trolley, they had a big, um, one of the foam type esters, right? Oh, yeah. The dog came up, sniffed it, took a few steps back, was about a metre and a half away, sat, looked at this thing and sort of rumbled, bit of a growl. Okay. And Ronnie went, show me, and the dog went, no, I'm staying here. They checked it out. It was an untanned black bear skin. Oh, wow. And the dog knew that it was something that was alert to, but also that canine instinct said it's something I'm not supposed to get too close to. So (laughs) a bit of (laughs) self-preservation, sat back and looked and went, yep, that's it. So just some weird ones. Most of it was pretty sort of mundane stuff, was the fruit, the meat, plant material, that sort of stuff. but, yeah, there were some interesting finds, you know, uh, odd reptiles, people smuggling eggs in. Um, uh, one gentleman tried smuggling grapevine cuttings inside his pants. And when Winston pinpointed, he went, ooh, into the guy's groin. That was amusing for everybody. Sorry. Moving right along now. Yep. So... Um, you talked about the training program. Um, yep. uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on what the dogs were trained to sniff out um, and what they had to maybe contend with to have no, uh, no sense um, what things weren't a biosecurity risk? Yeah. Right, well, what I should have said at the beginning is when, when we were testing the dogs, particularly for the airport, you would make sure that um, they were basically bulletproof so that nothing else, when they were on the job, nothing would disturb them. So we made a lot of noise, we had a lot of people around, moving conveyor belts, all sorts of stuff. Just so you knew, they got into the airport and they were focused on their job, nothing would disturb them. So we got that started and then the trainer would take them on uh, to do the the sense. We initially started in the pilot program, we started on fruit, one of the easiest ones of the lot. Okay. And the simple thing, for example, if you want them to do uh, oranges, you'd say you'd put an orange in boxes and we'd have a lot of boxes set out. Yep. Sterile boxes, clean, put an orange in one. And first thing you do is teach the dog to sit on command. So yep. the dog yep. comes walking on, sniffs, sniffs every box because that's what dogs do. Yeah. When it sniffs the box with the orange, you go sit, the dog sits, gets a little food reward. It takes no time for the dog to suddenly go, oh, if I smell that and I sit, I get fed. This is brilliant. Yeah. So then Next thing you do is you put a few boxes out with oranges. Yep, got it. Then you put a, an, a lemon. Yep. Okay, dog would come along and go, oh, it's close, I'll try it. And sit, get a reward. Yep. Then they go, whoa, this is simple. So any citrus fruit that you put in there, the dog will try it. If they get a reward, bang, that's in the picture. You do the same with apples, then you add pears, then you add 
And you can do that, you do it with the meat, you do it with plant material, and the dogs start to select. And, uh, and then they'll gener- what we call generalise. So, as I say, with the citrus fruit, start off with orange and just start expanding. Mandarins, limes, and they just then, anything that smells remotely citrus, they'll alert to. Yeah. And you keep expanding that. And then the dogs will always try any new scent. So then we start looking at, you put the normal scent out, and then you might put um, chocolate or some cake. Yeah. Or and, and then the dog would come up, oh, here's a new scent, I'll sit. You get nothing? Okay, fine. I know I don't get rewarded for that, so I'll ignore it. Yeah. It is basically that simple. Um, it takes time, yep. but in reality, it is that simple. The dog knows, all right, I won't get rewarded for that. I'll oh, get rewarded for all this other stuff, so I'll sit at it. <laughs> and then you start getting a little bit more complicated, and you do things like um, say, uh, fruit flavored lollies. Mm-hmm. Right? No, like fruit, but they're not. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And the dogs can pick the difference. And the amazing things about dogs is the the scent discrimination that they can do. I I like I put it this way. If you walked home and the boss is cooking a stew, you walk yeah. in, stew, lovely. Oh, this yeah. smells good. The dog walks in and goes, hmm, there's a bit of lamb. Oh, I smell some potato. Oh, there's turnip and there's oh, this, and they can discriminate all of these different scents. Yeah. Whereas you and I smell stew. Mm-hmm. The dog goes, yeah, that's got this, 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 and this, and this with it. So they can pick the difference, and you need to have that so that if somebody comes in and they're trying to smuggle in, for example, um, grape cuttings, for example, yeah. and then they try to because they know that the dogs will alert to certain things, yeah. they might try to mask it by putting in mm-hmm. smelly stuff. You know, um, you'd be surprised yeah. what people do. I won't go into some of the gross yeah. ones. <laughs> but, um, you know, but they'll try and put other food in. And so then they can yeah. declare it and go, oh, look, I've got this. I've got uh, chocolate biscuits, and that must be what the dog's alerting to. And we go, yeah. no, it's not. We know it's not. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you're going in for a check, and then yeah. we'll find what, what we're after. So... It sounds simple. Um, in reality, it is. It just takes a little bit of time. And then yeah. you can add things in later if you suddenly decide. See, we started off doing all the food, but then we yeah. went, okay, once the pilot program was settled, we then went, right, let's include bees. Yeah. Right? Then we'll include reptiles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you borrow people's reptiles, and that was fine. We had help from everywhere. People were helping us with all sorts of things. So you do that. In New Zealand, they wouldn't allow them to do snakes. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So I actually got a permit to send over shed snake skins. Oh, so right. Zealand, so they were so sent without a live snake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they weren't allowed to bring in live snakes. Right. Um, so, but to even use shed skins, I had to get a permit to send to New Zealand, but that's all right. <laughs> um and then we would add in things like eggs. Now, eggs is pretty tricky because it's not that much odour comes out of eggs, but the dogs yeah, will do it. And wow. the dogs can get it every time. So that's how you know, precise they are. That's how precise they are. Yeah. One grape in a suitcase and they'll find it. Yeah. It's that simple. You know, it, it really is. And they're just an exceptional tool. I was asked at one stage by somebody who said, well, 
with all the technology, there are handheld scent detectors. Yep. And surely that would be better than having to, you know, train up dogs and handlers and whatnot. My answer was twofold. Number one, passengers don't like handheld devices. They love dogs. It's yeah. that simple. All right. So okay. from a PR point of view, the dogs are phenomenal. Secondly, with those devices, you have to recalibrate them basically for every set. They are not going to have the huge range that the dogs can have. Yeah. And that's so, that's the generalist yes, about a dog that um, works very well. If you have a device that you program it to understand an orange, you'll have to program it to understand a lemon as well, whereas you can train a dog on an orange and it will get your lemon, your grapefruit, your lime. Your, yes. yep. Yeah. And, and as I said, do the birds, the birds and the bees. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so noting we're, we're running out of time, one Great. final question for you. Um, do you have any advice for someone who might be aspiring to become a dog handler or to become someone involved with the program? Um, yeah, if, um, yeah, okay. If you've got experience as a dog handler, it doesn't matter whether it's formal or not, you know, make sure that if you're applying, put the information in. But the other thing I will say also is that if you have other outside activities, this is something I, I've always insisted on. You know, other outside activities that can demonstrate that you have the staying power, the mindset that will allow you to go as almost as focused as the dogs do, yeah. please add it into your application. I had people who just didn't tell me enough. And when they spoke to me because they didn't score an interview, I would delve a bit further and say, well, hang on, next time, put that in your application. Yeah. But the main thing for dog handlers is number one, enjoy your job. Number two, the one thing we drive, we, we just drummed into our handlers all the time trust your dog. Yeah. Doesn't matter what anybody tells you, trust your dog because people will tell you all sorts of stories. Yeah, okay. About true. why your dog probably responded or didn't or whatever. Yeah. The other thing I didn't mention though is that one of that drawbacks is that the dogs will alert to residual odors. So right. if, you, if you've had an apple in your in your briefcase <laughs> and you've eaten it on the flight coming over and the dog alerts, if the passenger says, well, I had an apple in there, fine, good. That's still a reward for the dog because the scent is there. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was quite a few of our alerts. But we used to get an, an awful lot of... Um, it got to the stage where each dog would be averaging 12 to 15 seizures per flight. Wow. And that gets busy. It yeah, really very does. Much so, so you know, um, and they were a very, very good tool. The other thing that I didn't mention is that I unashamedly used them for PR. Yeah, well, you mentioned so, that the, the program grew and grew and had a life of itself. Did you have a role? So obviously yeah. you did, but. Was there something specific that you did, or did you just start to build oh, it? Just when people or? saw the dogs, they just kept saying, "Oh, can we take? Can we do filming with you? Can we do this?" And yeah, and we just used it to advertise because we were quarantine was always being um, confused with customs and you know, whatever, and so we used quarantine the dogs unashamedly to advertise quarantine. Yeah, but the other thing I loved is that we actually were then regarded as probably the world leader in this sort of work, right, and we ended up collaborating with New Zealand, with America again, with Canada, Korea, England, 
Um, yeah. And it, oh, and it was well. really nice that it got a bit more international. And uh, we helped the New Zealanders set up as well. Um, yeah. And so, no, it was lovely. I, I even went to America with Steve, the trainer, and we spent a lot of time at their training centre um, because things had started to go a little bit awry for them and right. they needed somebody from outside, which you always yeah. do. And this Definitely. is why yeah. after I started it, as I said, first teams in 92, mm-hmm. at the end of 2003, I had actually took a, taken over an international mail program for a while acting and then I went, no, hang on, I've been doing this for 11 years, the dogs. It's time for some fresh eyes, time for somebody else to put their stamp on it, and I just stayed where I was and left it, um, which yeah. you know, I think it was time. I mean, we all have our use by date. And the programs continue to grow and, and develop, yep. definitely. Right. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm just so pleased that we're actually doing this and looking at the 30-year anniversary um, yeah. because I think it's um, it, as a program, it's definitely worth celebrating. Very much so, and it's very important. It's a big milestone that we've gotten to, and the program has been successful for all of those 30 years. It hasn't ever dropped off. They've been one of our best detection tools. And and because it was so successful, they ended up giving me a public service medal. Oh, and I said, no, it's it's not. It wasn't me. It was the whole lot of them, the teams. And if it hadn't been for them, this wouldn't have happened. That the the secretary Mike Taylor just went no. No, we're making that public service medal and all right, I accepted it basically <laughs> on behalf of the team. Uh, and yeah. I just think it was it was probably the highlight of my working career. I I did I was almost thirty years in quarantine and uh, the dog program I had a brilliant time in quarantine. I I loved all of it for so twenty nine years and uh, I probably would have stayed there except the old Commonwealth superannuation scheme suggested that I get out before I turn 55. <laughs> so I, um, but yep. um, I, I just loved the quarantine stuff, but the dog program was for me the highlight. Um, wow. Well, thank you for telling us your story and a very big congratulations to you and the program that you built and that public service medal is um, definitely a reflection of that. Before we do finish up, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, Look, I could I could go on for hours, but I won't. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll just I'll just let it go. If there's anything else you need, just call yeah. me and let me know. Yeah. Um, but look, I wish you guys good luck with this. Um, Thank you. I hope the uh, anniversary goes well. I'm yeah, sure. Us too. And I know you said you weren't particularly as big a collector of merchandise, but we have a show bag we're getting together for the 30th anniversary. So I'll be sending one of those your way. Um, Thank you very much, Casey. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Detect and Protect. You can find out more information on the department's website or by visiting biosecurity.gov.au. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast series to get updates on future topics and learn more about Australian biosecurity. Also, be sure to follow us on our social media pages. Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Detect and Protect.